So now I'd like you to turn, please, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10. There are a number of verses that I want to draw to your attention today that tell a story, both a main story and the big picture, as well as the detailed story of God's plan for your life, of God's love for you, and his call upon your life. And it's an encouraging message. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing, and you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God, who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. I love the book of Deuteronomy. It is an almost evangelical book in the Old Testament. We, the evangelical message, the gospel message, we find it in the four gospels, we find it in, in the epistles, we find it in the New Testament. But you know, the good news of the gospel owes its origin and its foundation to the Old Testament. God's relationship with Abraham and Abraham's relationship with God is a prototypical relationship and we enter into relationship by faith just as Abraham did even though Abraham was a long long time before Christ came and the gospel itself 
was therefore presented. Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy, which means second law. It's a kind of restatement of the law and the history to that particular point. And it is as Moses has, uh, is about to hand over the nation to his successor to go and to possess the land. They, he goes over the story, but he tells the story of the slavery in Egypt, the deliverance through the Passover sacrifice, and, and, and God's faithfulness in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, despite the fact that the people of God didn't have enough faith to go straight into the promised land, and God cared for them, looked after them, reminded them of all the signs and wonders in Egypt a great act of deliverance and, and the law that is being put forward there, the conditions of covenantal relationship with God in Old Testament times. Also demonstrating that, you know, you, you, if, you, if you want to be blessed, you've got to be obedient. There's blessings and cursing. And if you're disobedient, not only will you not be blessed, but you will be cursed. Sicknesses will come upon you. And if, and if you keep that up, actually, you're going to be cast out of the land that you haven't even got into yet. So you listen to this and there's some clear messages like the verses I read seem to be almost something from the New Testament. What does the Lord ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, walk in his ways, love him, serve him with all your heart. But it's still in an old covenant context. And that's why we have to read this through the eyes of the cross. And here it is, let's do it straight away. Listening to the word of God in the Old Testament, knowing that God says, if you do this, you will live. In other words, obedience was so necessary that without it, you would perish. The laws of God were the laws of the land. I mean, people were stoned for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. I mean, it is very much old covenant theocratical, theocratic rule of God, and, and it's all designed for this one lesson. The God would turn away from all the nations of the world who had already failed. Not only through the flood, he had to start again, but after the flood, there is the sin at the Tower of Babel, and at that time, God judges the earth a second time and, and scatters the nations. They can't speak anyone anymore the same language, scattered them, confused their languages, and he said, now I am no longer going to be over you. I'm going to hand you over to the sons of God in my heavenly council, the angelic beings that I made to help supervise the affairs of the earth. I will not be your God. I will hand all the nations over and I'm going to start again with another nation. And he chose Abraham. And Abraham had Isaac and Jacob. And then there were the 12 tribes. And the whole of the nation of Israel was raised up. With this covenantal promise, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. So God says, Look, you are my chosen. And then he said this, but don't think that you can live as you want because actually if you go and turn after other gods and you disobey me, I will deal with you. <laughs> and, the, and the Bible makes it very clear that the God who reveals himself under the old covenant 
is the God of judgment, is the God of 100% yes, not one no can be spoken to him, all authority, so holy that one sin will keep you away from him. And that builds up into what the Apostle Paul develops in the early stages of the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The whole of humanity rests under the condemnation of God. So all the failures in the Old Testament point to your failure, my failure, but beyond that, point to the need of a saviour. And this is the one thing we have to read here that is different from the Gospel and the book of Deuteronomy. Christ has come. And he has taken our place on the cross so that now all the judgment and condemnation that was upon our lives has fallen upon him and in Christ we say there is now therefore no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. It's a very difficult message, you know, because we want to get to the good news. You want to meet your friends and say, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you. And you, and you think they're going to say, oh, that's amazing news. They say, well, why, why did he do that? I never asked him to do that. Well, you need him. Why? Died for my sin. What, what sin? What are you talking about? Unless people see that they're sinners, they're not going to even celebrate that, even the idea that somebody's going to be a saviour. Mostly they say, don't need to interfere in my life, God. I never asked you to come. never asked you to show up. I'm my own boss, thank you. Get out of here. I've heard people talk like that. So when you read the Bible and you see the judgments of God, know that they are real because our God is an awesome God. Our God is a holy God. Our God is a God to be feared. Even the New Testament says, do not fear the one who just merely can kill the body, but fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell or Hades. So we, we don't mess with God. And when I read this, I get the awesome experience of the fear of God and the awesome nature of God. Not just because I'm reading a little verse here, a little verse there. I've reverted to a system, personal system of reading the scripture, which, which now will cover the Bible for me four times a year. It's using, having so much more of the word of God going into you, and we need that in these testing times, to be strong in the word. But when you read whole chunks like that, you get the sense of God's character and his awesome nature. But the big message comes across. Yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but there is grace and forgiveness in the name of Jesus. So what is left? We read the Old Testament receiving its message of the awesome holiness and nature, glorious nature of God, but we receive it as his sons and daughters. We don't forget who he is. And at this particular point, God is speaking to Israel. Moses is reminding them, what is it all about? And as we come to reorientate our lives and reset our lives, what is it all about?
if you have had a glimpse of the awesome God, as these people did, or at least their parents did, the children of this generation, they, they had not seen, many of them, the, the, the awesome things in Egypt. They had not seen the miracles, and they had to be told about that. See, everybody 20 years and, uh, and older perished in the wilderness, so people who were 20 years uh, old, or under 20 years at this stage, you know, coming up probably about 60 years of age, the 60-year-olds could, could remember it, but not many more. Wouldn't it be awful if only 60-year-olds in this building today could remember the awesome deeds of God? <laughs> That'd be me. I don't know, you're laughing, probably not you, because <laughs> maybe you, I don't know. Nope, I'm not pointing at anybody. But the, the whole thing is, is that the Holy Spirit who lives in us all can show us the awesome deeds of God and he is not leading us to some kind of flippant relationship with God. He is wanting us to, to be reminded of how powerful, how awesome, how glorious, how holy is our God. And that's what's needed today to cut across this almost total rejection of the revelation of Scripture in our society. And it's our job to get back to the awesome God. Uh, let me tell you a story. I don't know if you recall Annan Court, which was, we had an encounter center for about 10 years. And I, I was there for a weekend, and there were a, a group of young people, and in particular, there were three or four young people who were working in the kitchens, and they, they weren't believers in Jesus. And um, I, I got to know them and, and included them in some of the activities. And uh, Annan Court is right out there in the country, and the, there was no floodlighting, no street lamps, and behind where we were, there was... A, a wood, dark, forest-type wood. Now, these guys came from that area. So I said, oh, let's go for a walk. They went for a walk. They go, oh, what was that? What was that? I said, what's what? They got so scared, so nervous. And, and, uh, and they said, oh, I'm so glad Colin's with us. And you know what? They were enjoying being scared. Because I suppose that their minds were saying there's no real danger here. But that, I began to realize something about young people. That experience, that, that, that the need to feel a certain kind of fear. A certain kind of transcendent fear. So I put forward a theory that that's one of the reasons why teenagers love kind of scary movies. Because when they feel that awesome sense, that sense of awe, it, it's, it is pointing towards a need in their life. Because if everything around us was just normal and prosaic, and we never had that sense of awe, that sense of fear, we, we, would, we would have no capacity to search after the supernatural. No capacity to yearn after the transcendent. And one of the most extraordinary, amazing things, when we come into contact with God, we realize that God is not like us. He is the awesome God. He is holy. He is supernatural. He is uncreated spirit. 
And so many of my friends are reaching out to that even now, the millennial generation, trying to introduce them to Jesus. But there is this sense of awesome fear and they, they recognize that God, if he exists, he is so supernatural that you've got to admit that he is scary. Are you with me? Now we've got to cover the point about being fear of condemnation because that, that kind of perfect love casts that kind of fear out. But what I see in this first two verses is a call of the Holy Spirit. If we say, God, how are we going to reset our lives as we come back to the church building and focus on the future? What does God want of us? He wants us to remember that he is awesome. That the miracles that God did in Egypt, from the crossing of the Red Sea, back to the Passover lamb, which caused the angel of death to pass over the homes of those whose houses have been applied by the blood of Jesus Christ. The plagues, everything that God did, the miracles in the wilderness, all of that, God is saying, I am your God and I am awesome. And that awesomeness is, is, not, is not like, oh, did you know Starbucks has opened a new store around the corner? How awesome. Okay. Keep your awesome word for Starbucks, right? But when we talk about God, he is more awesome than that. He is so awesome that even the saved aged apostle, John, who was known for his intimate relationship with Jesus as the disciple whom Jesus loved. When he saw the Lord, he fell on his face as though he were dead. And he said, it's awesome! You'd think that intimacy might have been the occasion to say, hey, Jojo, great to see you again. By the way, not too sure why you put me on this island, but maybe you can tell me, bro. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, our God is an awesome God. And the world needs to see the awesomeness of our God. How will we show them how awesome God is? I've tried it. And without the Holy Spirit, you can't do it. You can't say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you the most awesome being in the whole universe. His name is Yahweh! And they will say, who? Now, when the Holy Spirit shows up and pours out his spirit, God brings a sense of holy fear, awesomeness of his presence, and even the atheist will tremble. Now that's God's uh, prerogative. I think revival is when God manifests that. We, we don't, can't make him do it. If you know how we could make him do it, let me know. But it, it, we're just longing for God to show up 
and declare himself, I am the awesome God. Now, but before that happens, there's another way of showing how awesome God is in the way we respond to him. So when people see our lives, they're going to say, well, I don't know anything about your God, but as far as you're concerned, I reckon you believe he's an awesome God because nothing else explains how you live, what you do. So what is it now? Verse 1. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? So that's it. O Kensington Temple, what is it that I require of you as you reset your lives back in my direction? How is it that you reset your life? What is God calling of us? And it's very simple. He says, this is it. Fear him. Follow him. Love him. Serve him. Obey him. Now, as these flow very much together and after one another, I'm not going to give you a five-minute presentation on those five points. I've built everything up because, you see, if we, if we get that he's awesome, that, that he didn't have to save us, but he set his love upon us and sent Jesus for us so that we can be in a right relationship as a holy God and, and there's nothing that we could ever do to contribute to our salvation that he saved us by his grace, what then is our response to this awesome God? Number one, fear him. And I think I covered that enough in terms of awesomeness, but what I want to do is make sure that the New Testament, you understand, the New Testament fear of God is not fear of judgment. John writes in his letter, and he says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And the context is of judgment. So there is no fear of judgment or condemnation in the presence of God if you have faith in Christ because the blood of Jesus has dealt with it. Amen and amen. So I'm not talking about that kind of fear. I'm talking about the awesome fear which is so intense in Scripture that the Bible says, the beginning of uh, fear is the beginning of wisdom. Amen? And that it is also clean. Because it's a holy fear. Not a craven fear of judgment. It is a holy regard for God's glory. Showing in every part of your life. The, the, the passion Bible translation of the Lord's Prayer includes something like this. It begins, our Father who dwells in the heavenly realms, may the glory of your name be the center around which our lives turn. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's such an awesome respect for God and his glory that everything you do revolves around the manifestation of who he is.
That's the kind of fear. Then, of course, he goes on to say, fear the Lord and walk in all his ways. Walk in all his ways. That's discipleship. Follow God. Follow Jesus. Let his ways be seen in you. Then he builds on this and says, love him. Love him. Love is an Old Testament word, not just a New Testament word. Love him. And what this is, is a wholesome, tender-hearted gratitude and holy regard for God. This isn't lovey-dovey, feely. And if you've got nice, kind of fuzzy emotions in the presence of God, that's fantastic, isn't it? But you don't depend on them. Love is a commitment. Love is respect. Love is a consideration of God. And a holy regard for his ways and his truth. The Bible says the time is coming when people are not put up with sound doctrine. And that doesn't mean to say they wouldn't know how to pass a theology test. That's not what it means. What it means is that everything that God is and declares himself to be is revelation that we take and we live it out with our lives. Right now, if we listed all the things that popular opinion says it's okay to do and to be, and listed that against the Bible's injunctions concerning the lifestyle that we have in him, the difference is so stark. It's the difference between night and day, darkness and night, good and evil. So to, to show the world how awesome God is, let that love so work in our lives that we don't do what people expect us to do, even when it makes us unpopular, even when they criticize us and call what we believe evil, which is actually happening. Basic biblical morality is being put forward as social evil in today's world. But we love God enough to take our stand. And then serve him wholeheartedly. What this means is that in a very real way, the whole of our lives is about serving God. We don't give him just a little bit on the edges. Show up here and show up there. No, the whole of our lives is about serving him. Everything we do is about serving him. Our workplace is not just for a salary or for our own job satisfaction or our own ambition or career path. God will take us and place us as servants of the Lord in the health service. And it needs you. In business, education. We need Christians to love God and serve him in every sphere of society. And serving him isn't just being quiet, get a paycheck and go home to church. It is living the glory of God and standing up and being counted even when it costs. 
It means that the cell vision, which is more of a strategy than anything else, is at the center of your life, not the periphery of your life. You'll give your all to this, for together, nothing more glorious, nothing more praiseworthy, nothing more in line with the Great Commission than we join together to serve God by winning, making disciples, encouraging them, discipling them, mentoring them, mobilizing them, so the work of the church explodes. Because God's people are workers, not shirkers. And then finally, give him your all. Obedience. Not an optional extra. To observe the Lord's commands and decrees. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so, you know, if I started today by saying, here are five things you need to do. I think by number three, I'd be depressed myself, let alone you. But I didn't start there. I started with, our God is an awesome God. And when you are in relationship with him, and you know him, all these things is the naturally supernatural overflow of walking with the God who has loved you, saved you, delivers you, and will bring you into his eternal glory. And that, for me, is the call of God for our generation.